0: Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to be together and for your word, Lord God. I pray that I would preach as faithfully today and um, as courageously as I need to, Lord God, but certainly as accurately to your word as I can and under the anointing of the Spirit. And I pray for this congregation to receive it. I pray for hearts to be open. I pray for your Holy Spirit to take that seed and plant it so that what we be produced in their lives would be uh, manifest 30, 60, and 100 fold on the seed that's planted. So they did a hallmark, um, did an exercise a number of years ago in one of the American prisons. What they did, you guys all know that Father's Day is coming up on Sunday. Hey, if you could just mention that to Linda and my kids if you get the chance. Um, I haven't been dropping any hints. I forgot all about it. But um, they did this thing where on Mother's Day they supplied cards. All the prisoners to be able to write a card with, with stamped envelopes so they'd be able to put it in and send it to their mother's. And when they did it on this this week before the Mother's Day they ran out of cards. They had to send back to the head office and go and get more cards again so these prisoners could send the letters to their mothers. It was such a success and, and I mean what an amazing thing, these prisoners being able to send these these cards, to their mothers will write in there something of what they and uh, what their mothers mean to them, that they decided they would do the same thing with Father's Day as well. And um, I don't remember exactly but if I what I can remember I think is that not one single card was taken in Not one single one of those prisoners wanted to send a letter to his father. They either didn't know them, they didn't care about them, or they hated them. And uh, the tragedy here is not that bad people love their mothers more than good people.
1: Though there is a,
0: you do wonder what that is all about. The tragedy is that when there's a lack of fathers, it does lead to the situation where these young men get into destructive um, patterns in their lives and end up in prison. The problem is it's not, problem is that, but the problem additionally is that it's not just boys, it's girls as well. I've got these stats from um, Ralph Neighbor's book, Bringing Up Girls. Girls whose fathers provide warmth and control achieve greater academic success. Girls who are close to their fathers exhibit less anxiety and withdrawal behaviors. Parental connectedness is the number one factor in preventing girls from engaging in premarital sex and indulging in drugs and alcohol. Daughters who believe that their fathers care about them have significantly fewer suicide attempts and fewer instances of body dissatisfaction, depression, low self-esteem, substance abuse, and unhealthy weight. Girls with involved fathers are twice as likely to stay in school. Girls with fathers or father figures feel more protected, are more likely to attend college, and are less likely to drop out of college. Girls with good fathers are less likely to seek male attention by flaunting themselves. Girls who live with their mothers and fathers as opposed to mothers only have significantly fewer growth and developmental delays and fewer learning disorders, emotional disabilities, and behavioral problems.
1: Girls who live with their mothers only
0: have significantly less ability to control impulses and delay gratification and have a weaker sense of conscience about right and wrong. And last week I spoke about the fact that God's plan for us was that we would have a mother and a father and bring up the children. I want to say two things before I kick off today. I'm not here today to, to add to any sense of guilt you might have if you've gone through a divorce. I'm not here to add to any sense of um, like, uh, condemnation or anything that you might be carrying. In fact, God wants us to be free of that stuff. What we do need is for God's redemptive workings to come even into broken relationships. And as I speak this morning on the role of fathers in particular but the parental unit in raising the children and bringing up boys and girls, I trust that you receive it. If you, if, if you feel like, man, I've made so many mistakes, I want to say to you it's never, ever too late to begin to be correct those mistakes. In Isaiah 43, verse 67, there's this incredible prophetic declaration. Where the prophet says "And this, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And as I read that this week, I had the sense that there was like this, God is, is wanting us to prophetically call our sons and our daughters to him and into his kingdom and onto his path. And God is far less interested. It's not that he's not interested, but he's far less interested in how our business is doing or how our career is advancing or how faithful we are in our ministry or how amazing the adventures we go on or how great our Facebook posts are. He cares about them far less than he cares about how well our kids are doing under our care as mom and dad. In Malachi 2 verse 15, it says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? What a question. And what does the Lord want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Loyal to the wife of your youth, and raising children is a profound responsibility. And as I was going through that, I was thinking, like, how can we possibly live up to that responsibility? Um, Justin and Catherine are part of the evening congregation. I was talking to him last week after the meeting. He was they've got the the small little unit that's been added to the household. He says can't believe I'm a father. Do you know what I mean? I said, buddy, just wait. There's a lot more to come. They're just changing that piece. and those who've been parenting for a while know that is true. So how do we parent in a way that we produce these godly offspring that God's speaking about? That we don't end up with those daughters that suffer from the ailments that are read or, or boys that are maybe not in prison but on that spectrum of living with self destructive behaviour that aren't being the fathers and the husbands that God has created them to be. Number one, friends, we depend upon the grace of God. And I don't, I can't overstate the importance of this, that we recognize that no matter how good we are as parents, we need the grace of God. And no matter how bad we are as parents, or how many mistakes we've made, the grace of God is there if we will trust in it to be able to make up for the mistakes that we do make. And I said to you last week that uh, that none of us are perfect as parents, and God doesn't expect us to be perfect. But the second thing is we want to do the best, we can. We don't want to be leave this to chance. Well, I, mean, I hope I'm doing all right. I mean, I'm, you know, whatever. I'm, you know, I'm going with the flow in terms of raising my kids. I hope it's all right. I believe God wants us to to put our hands to this plough and not to look back to do as well as we can possibly do in raising our children. And at the end of our lives, there probably be nothing more significant that we can have accomplished than those few that we've added to this society that have come through our homes, and been raised up to be men and women that love the Lord. And what you sow into their lives will, will sow into generation after generation after generation. <clears throat> You've probably heard the saying before that love is spelt, what is it? How is it spelt? T-I-M-E. Love is spelt time. And I've used that as an acronym just for four points that I think are, if we can get these things right in our parenting, we will be will be far ahead in terms of um, what god's asking for us and and we'll be raising up godly men and godly women so number one is truth in uh, john 1 verse 16 to 17 it says this for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace for the law was given through moses but grace and truth came through jesus christ and uh sometimes people think that Jesus has got you know, grace and truth inside of him, but there's like maybe grace is 80% and truth is like 30% in Jesus. That isn't how it works. It's like Jesus is not 50% human and 50% divine. He is 100% divine and 100% human. And those characteristics of grace and truth are also completely representative. He is 100% grace and he is 100% truth. And those two um, parts of God's nature are not in conflict with each other. God doesn't have to go, you know what, I need to put my truth aside to let my grace flourish, or I need to put my grace aside to let my truth flourish. In fact, the only way they can both flourish is when they are both completely um, expressed within um, our lives. We're going to speak this morning about, under this title of truth, about boundaries. How do we put boundaries in place for our children? C.S. Lewis was once um, read a once walked into a room and there were some church leaders or learned scholars of the Bible or something gathered together and they were having a debate as to what is the thing that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions. And C.S. Lewis without batting an eyelid said, Well that's easy. It's the grace of God. And we know it's true. Christianity is the opposite of some sort of legalistic morality. In fact, doing away with the utterly hopeless idea that we can, by our outward behavior, earn salvation, is the very reason why Jesus came. He came to save us from the fact that we cannot save ourselves. It doesn't matter how well you're dressed, friends. It doesn't matter if you wear a tight at church and you wear a suit. It doesn't matter if you're tired 30%. It doesn't matter if you never use those words your mother told you not to use. It doesn't matter if you're faithful in your marriage. None of us are without sin. And because we all fall short, and that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount sets us up as a word for failure. It's not just this, you've got to live like this. It's not just not, uh, committing adultery, not even look at a woman lustfully. And we've, we, we end up being completely hopeless at that point, and then Jesus gives us the hope. We fall into the, the grace of God. And that's the point Randy Alcorn makes in this quote from his book, um, The Grace and Truth Paradox. He says this, the Christian life is far more than sin management. Behavior modification that is not empowered by God's heart-changing grace is self-righteous, as repugnant to God as the worst sins people gossip about. Children who grow up with graceless truth are repelled by self-righteousness and attracted to the world's sickly marketed grace substitutes. So, What he's saying is... probably know people like this. that they, they, they might be religious, they might be irreligious, but, but the, it's so important that they behave in a certain way, but nothing's changed inside of them. And later on, you learn out that this person who was so righteous on the outside was actually hooked on pornography, was committing adultery, because unless the change occurs from the inside out, eventually that sin's going to find its way out of it. And so what we're talking about today in putting boundaries in place for our kids is not in any way to um, put aside the grace of God it has to start from that place where the grace of God is evident in our um, families and I'll talk about that a bit more but in one of my favorite books on parenting, a book called Grace Based Parenting Tim Kimmel using that quote says, on the other hand so there's a quote from Randy Alcorn and he says on the other hand, and he goes on to say this seeing grace as an excuse not to parent your children within the boundaries of godliness is equally repugnant to God It is not grace that condones the crooked paths our children may take. Rather, it is a cowardice, laziness, and selfishness. Home has got to be the place where our children are safe from the traps of the world and assured that they have parents who won't surrender God's standards even to them. And so what he's saying is, and this whole book is about grace. It's about how do we raise our kids actually in the gospel, in in Jesus. And Jesus came full of grace. And he's saying that those boundaries need to be in place. And Paul says a similar thing in Romans 6, verse 1-2, when he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. So he is, the King James Version says it so well. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He goes, God forbid it. God forbid that we should continue in sin. And so we've got to talk about putting boundaries in place for our children to flourish with it. And I think... Um, I think there's three reasons why you should enforce boundaries. These three lines, if kids cross them, I think you need to step in. We don't cross, we don't step in when our kids are just being kids. When when your boys are running around in the backyard and kicking the soccer ball, and suddenly it blasts through the house, the window of your house, you don't go grab your boys and stop beating upon them, because that's what boys do. They break things, they kick things. You know that's that's and girls as well. But there are three things that we do need to step in. Number one is. When they cross the line of respect into the realm of disrespect for you, your wife, your husband, or any other authority in their life, you need a step in. That's not a time to go. Oh, Johnny's so cute. You know, I, I love his. I love his zest for life. That's not a zest for life, friends. I want to say that that is a zest for death. And I'm, it I'm, sounds terrible. That is a zest for death. Disrespect and rebellion is not in any way glorifying and honouring to God. I can remember the one time. I went to pick Matthew up from school. And uh, he was at the junior school before he got to high school. And he would got an amazing report that year. Just an unbelievable report. And we were like so proud of him. Because like, the thing we always ask the teachers, before we ask about the mark, is, what are their manners like? Are they, are they respectful? And so she, we, I picked him up from school that day. And the teacher said to me, did you enjoy Matthew's report? And I said, oh, thanks so much. It was amazing. She goes, if I was writing it today, I wouldn't give him that report. Oh, so she says, Matthew has not been listening, he's been disrespectful, he's been dishonoring to me, and so I, um, I was on the motorbike with Matthew, I put him on the back, I couldn't shout at him on the way home because we were, we were in helmets, Got home I said to the boy, I'll giving you three options here, you go get a haircut, because his hair was growing too long, it was like rebellious hair, you're laughing, you chatting about it after." I said I'm going to give you a, a spanking, um, or I'm going to take your iPod away for, for whatever it is, a month or something like that, you go to your room, you come back and tell me what you he back to your Dad, I've decided you take my iPod away. I said, well, I've changed my mind. I'll give you a spanking, cutting your hair, and taking your iPod away. Because our kids don't get to choose their discipline. We get to choose their discipline. And I gave him a proper spanking. I didn't give him some spanking like you people give your children. I know, I know. I've heard it. I, I, I give him a spanking and they don't cry. I just want to say you're not doing it properly. I'm, it's as simple as that. You may need to go back a little bit further on the backswing in order for it to come through. I turn up for school the next day to pick him up, Matthew says to me, as he walks out of the class, he turns to his teacher, he says, ma'am, how was I today? And she says, you were a completely different child. See, we've, see I'm not, I don't want to force him to be some moralistic behavior, like some random set of my rules that he needs to obey, but there are certain things that our children cannot um, push against, and that's respect, they can't push against the... The, um, the, the, the line of respect. They can't push against the line of submission to the authorities that are in their lives. And the one of the things they can't push against the line of common sense and wisdom into negligence is your kids, you don't need to have too much brain to know that playing cricket with a hard cricket ball in the lounge using the TV as the wicket is not going to end in disaster. That You know that in that situation you need to be enforcing the boundaries of their lives. And some people have said that we... Um, have to leave the kids to the natural consequences of their behavior. Friends, you are the natural consequence of their behavior. That's why God puts you in their lives. The natural consequence of your daughter having sex with a boy that is not her husband when she's 16 years old is not a natural consequence you want her to walk into. Because it might be sexually transmitted diseases, it might be an early pregnancy, it might be that her heart is broken and that her, her ability to function healthily in a sexual relationship is is messed up until God heals her one day from that thing. So deal with it long before it gets to those natural consequences. And I'm telling you, when you're mostly dealing with it is when they're two to four years old. If you do it then, you have to do it far less from when they're four to twelve, and you hardly have to do it after that because you do the stuff up front. And uh, you are not a spectator in the sport of your children's lives. You are on the field with them. You are not even the referee. You are in the game with them. You have, you have skin in the game. And part of it is to enforce those boundaries. And uh, it is a weighty task. We, it demands our time and our energy, that we are consistent. There are times where I lay up on the couch and one of my kids would do something that I had to then go and discipline. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to let this one slide. You know what I mean? I'm on the couch. I'm lying down. I don't want to get up at this moment. And then I would drag my lazy butt off the couch because like he said, it's laziness and cowardice. And I would take my son and my daughter and we'd go visit the little bathroom and um, there would be some conversation. There would have to be spanking if it was necessary. There'd be some more conversation. There would be prayer and there would be walking out of there and 20 minutes of my life would be gone. What a waste, except it's not a waste. And it must be invested in our children. It must be done consistently year after year after year after year. There has to be a moral courage in our hearts, that we are not, um, like, this thing that our children are just small adults. I would say it's a lie from the pit of hell.
1: When they are adults, they are adults. Before they are
0: adults, they are children. Their brains are not even fully developed until they're 18 years old. You have a role to play. As they grow older, their autonomy increases as well, and you give them increasing levels of independence. But, it, but we can't give it to them when they're still young. We have to shape them here and bring them to their place later on. This is an amazing scripture from 1 Kings 1 verse 6. It says, speaking of David, it says his father had never interfered by asking him, why do you behave as you do? The um, ESV says he had never displeased him. And that word there is a um, Hebrew word that is pronounced um, atzav. And uh, it means, the first meaning is to hurt, pain, grieve, displease, vex, or rest. And the second um, aspect of the meaning is shape to fashion to make to form and to stretch into shape his father had never shaped him and formed him by causing him pain or hurt or displeasure when i say to ethan ethan that's enough on the xbox you need to stop playing i i'm vexing him i am grieving him he will probably tell you that i'm causing him physical pain by setting the boundaries in place like that it's my job that's my job I read, Linda sent me an article on Facebook this week about some kid that was playing Fortnite. Their parents didn't realize it was a problem until they came to the lounge and saw them sitting on a urine soaked cushion because they couldn't leave the game to we while they were playing because they got so locked in it. It's our job not to be spectators. It's our job to set the boundaries in place. Does that make sense? The second thing about truth, and for so the next slide up, is that we've got to shape our kids' worldview. And uh, we live in an age... Just go to the next slide for a second. We live in an age where the, the idea of absolute truth is constantly challenged. I don't know if you're on Twitter, um, most of you will be on something like Facebook, but if you go down and you read, so like there's a post, and then you read all the comments that follow after that thing. I've got a bit of an addiction to that. I might come on Saturday, break my addiction to reading those comments. I am struck by how an unbiblical, how an unbiblical worldview um, grips the heart of so many people. There are no facts, only interpretations. There's no such thing as truth. As humans, we believe there is an absolute, but there really isn't. Nothing is guaranteed, and so we teach our children that there is no absolute truth. That there is no, there's no right, and there's no wrong. There's no justice, there's no injustice. It doesn't matter. I mean, if you love the person, and have sex with them. this thing about whether you have sex in marriage or outside of marriage, if you, if you if you can find a way of making money, it doesn't matter if it's a little bit illegal, you know what I mean? Just just do it. There's no right and there's no wrong. If, you, if, if it feels good, you do it. And part of what we do as parents is we, we soak them in. We marinate them in a biblical worldview. There is a right and there is a wrong, not because I say there is, but because there's a higher authority, the one who created all of us, that establishes what is right and is wrong. And uh, I think, friends, we need to have conversations with our children about that. I think we should talk about things like sex with our children. The worst thing you can do is leave it to their friends. I hope that isn't your strategy, leaving the sex talk to your friends. I mean, holy moly. I spoke to Hannah about sex when she was eight years old. seems like completely premature. Within two weeks of me having that conversation with her, a friend came and had the conversation with her and a group of girls. She had seen her mother having sex with her boyfriend, and she came and told them what sex is all the conversation about sex before they did and the thing I tell my children is this I have much more sex than your friends so if you want to come somebody that knows what's going on come to me don't go to your friends and I hope that's true of you if you're married as well if you're not married then you shouldn't anyway you know what I'm saying it says in John 10 verse 4 that my sheep know my voice and we've got to teach our children to know his voice and his voice is the voice of truth so when you read something on Facebook or on Twitter or whatever it is, there should be something inside of you that goes, is this true or is this not true? I don't need a faith fact checker to be able to know whether something that has been said is contrary to the voice of Jesus which we see in His Word of God. We've got to saturate them in the Word of God so that they are raised in truth. Secondly, we've got to um, the second point is truth and the second one is identity. And we've got to Firm the image, identity. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when you've gone on a holiday with your kids or if you've got a Saturday, especially with smaller kids. You've got a Saturday off and you've gone out to the park or something and you're kicking the ball around. How often you'll hear your son and your daughter say this, Daddy, Daddy, watch me. Dad, watch me. And they're coming, Dad, Dad, look. They, they, they're, they're constantly seeking, especially the Father's affirmation to who they are and what they're doing bible says they created in the image of god but in our fall that image has got distorted and part of our job as fathers is to re-establish that image and i've said to you before that i think all boys are asking this question dad do i have what it takes am i able to do this and the truth is most of the marriage counseling i do is still answering that question the wife is saying to the husband you don't have what it takes buddy." Like this and it's breaking up because Men need, that's, that's the question they need to answer throughout their life is, do I have what it takes? The person whose voice is the loudest in this one, more than anybody, even in a grown man who's married, is the father's voice. I cannot tell you how many men I speak to who are still trying to, in one way or the other, just hear that affirmation from their father, he have got what it takes. They want to hear this, hey, my boy, I'm proud of you. I remember, I've got, a, I've got an unusual family, man. I've got um, two brothers that made some sort of um, like national sport out of sinning. That no, they did. They were like off the charts. You come after you name a sin. They've done it. I say almost without exception. And uh, then I've got another. I've got a younger brother. Those they, my two half brothers. A younger brother who's a full-on hippie. Um, magic mushrooms, the whole works. A, a, ser- a story that I mean, he's a beautiful man but crazy. And then. Um, then I've got a younger brother as well who, who does serve the Lord, which I'm grateful for. And I, My dad was going over to the UK the one time to visit with this brother of mine. This I said to him, I remember where I was? I was at the Vol Dam. It was late at night. The stars were out. I was on the phone to him. He was in the UK. And I said to him, Dad, just tell him that you're proud of him. Just tell him that, because I was academically strong and my brother wasn't academically strong. And my dad valued academics more than he valued creativity. And my brother was very creative. I said, Dad, just tell him that you're proud of him. And friends, we need to tell our children, our sons, in this instance, a thousand times in a thousand different ways, you've got what it takes. When your son kicks the ball and it, and it slips into the corner of the goals, and you go, wow, what a shot. You say, boy, you've got what it takes. When he comes home and he's, and he's improved the marks on his on his test, and he's got 54% instead of 50%. You go, wow, my boy, I'm really proud of them. I'm not talking about flattering our kids. I'm talking about where they genuinely do well. We affirm who they are. And our daughters are asking a question as well, which is a different one. is, in some ways, am I lovely? Am I worth it? Am I worth it? See, it's, a, it's what Paul speaks about in Ephesians when he says, he says, wives, submit to your husbands. What he's saying is, wives, respect your husbands. It's just part of them that says, you've got what it takes. As you, as you wife your husband, can you say it that way? As you go through your wife responsibilities, the greatest thing that you can do for your own well-being is to say, is to affirm your husband's abilities and capabilities. And for the husband, the greatest thing you can do is to affirm the value and the worth of your wife. You are valuable. You are worth my time. You are worth my attention. You are worth my provision. You are worth my protection. Because you are incredibly precious to me. And it's, it's almost the same, but it's different. But the father's responsibility is in both of those situations as well. And again, dad, tell your daughters how beautiful they are. Don't let them guess whether they're beautiful or not. Every single person ever created is beautiful. And you can say with absolute integrity, my girl, you are beautiful. And she'll say, I don't know you seen that film, Wonder. And the little boy and the mother says to him, my boy, you are so beautiful. He goes, are you my mom? You have to say that. She goes, no, no. It's because I'm your mom, it counts the most. Friends, that's it. Because you're the dad, it counts the most. Speak it over your sons and daughters. We also need to affirm their gender identity. Uh, James Dobson reckons that at the age of 18 months is one of the key moments when our sons and our daughters their gender identity. 18 months. Don't be an absent dad at 18 months. And those formative, important years of your children's life, don't think, well, when they can talk and when they can walk, then I'll, I'll get involved in their life. You need to be involved in their lives from the very beginning. And then it come, there comes a point at about three or four years of age where the son, you won't actually say this because he would kill his mother if he did, but in his heart, there's this transaction that goes, he goes, Mom, you know that I love you, but I don't want to be like you. I want to be like you. And it's like, it's, there's something that we he looks up, I, I was holding um, Arthur this morning, as Johnny was up here playing his guitar, and there's something in, in Arthur that's going, I want to be like my dad. Does he love his mom? He would die. He one day will die for his mom if it's necessary. He probably won't die for his dad, but he wants to be like his dad. And my experience, my experience, has been that in 100% of the people that I've counseled, the young men that I've counseled for homosexuality that have battled with homosexual desire, my experience, okay, 100% is there's an overbearing mother or an absent, harsh, abusive father. I tell you, our responsibility in affirming their sexuality and their generality, their confidence in who they are cannot be overstated. And I haven't had much experience in counseling women that battle with lesbianism. What I've read from those who have got lots of experience with it is 90% of the time, 90% there's some exception to this, it's where there's, um, there's been sexual abuse of them when they've been girls. And I know this is politically incorrect and all of those things, I want to tell you there is a brokenness and a woundedness that we are celebrating in the world today that is not bringing healing, that is not bringing wholeness. And if the church doesn't begin to call the sons and daughters back from the north and the south, who else is going to do it? We need to affirm the gender identity of our children as well by loving them, caring, and protecting them. I was talking to Peter this morning about something that he had seen when he was traveling um, around human trafficking, and I was saying, where's the father? Where's the father of a 16-year-old girl? You've seen that film, Taken. Oh, man, I don't believe in killing people myself, but, man, I have never been so excited about people dying. as in that movie that I'm watching. that thing. It's like, like that's his girl. I mean, it's every... like. Man alive, even if I didn't, wasn't a superhero like he is, I would, I would somehow channel Liam Neeson and go and be that guy to go rescue my daughter. That's your job, Dad, is to protect your girls, to protect your boys, and not let the enemy come in Lastly, you need to affirm the unique identity. Um, I mentioned this book in so the next slide. My, if you want um, books to read on parenting, I honestly cannot recommend James Dobson highly enough. And yes, some of his books. Go buy all of those that are on, that are put there. Every single one of those you should be reading. I'm not even joking. I know he's old now. So obviously everything he's written is completely worthless. And that's how people think. Eh? It's called, the, it's called the, the era of progressivism. That only something that's new is of value. This man has spent his life ministering to the family. He's a psychologist. And that what he's written in those books, I honestly consider to be profound wisdom. The only book that I would admit would have some other recommendations, I'm certain. But the book I would add is this one, you yeah, have Grace-Based Parenthood by Tim Kimmel. And in this book, he talks about, you can go to the next slide, thanks, about how we need to affirm our children's um, unique identity. And I think this is a revelation to me as it came out. It's something we know intuitively that all of our children are different. Isn't that right? We, we say things like, you know, I've got, I've got three kids, I can't believe how different, Hannah is to Ethan, and Ethan is to Matthew, and they, we say that's different. But some part of us, wants to make them all the same we can't help it because we think we're perfect just by that's who we are it's like it's just our, our grid and our, our lens so we think the way we see the world is the way the world is it's our perspective and what happens is we begin to shape our children according to us and uh instead actually god has given us these incredibly unique human beings and we've got to figure out god how do we create enough room around them so they can be who you've created them to be so i was not I, was, um, I, was, I did well at school. I went on to study to be an accountant. and It would seem natural then for my children to do well at school and to go on to become accountants. But that isn't the grace of God. The grace of God is, God, what have you got for them? What is your plan for them? I said to Matthew last night, struggling a little bit with something, I said to him, um, I said to him, I reminded him of a conversation we had had earlier. And I said, you know, when I, previously I said to him, do you know what God's plan is for your life? And he said, Dad, I don't. I said, but do you know that he does have a plan for your life? And he said, that I do when you know that God has got a plan for your children, then you know that what he's put inside of them is what they need to fulfill their plan, then you can open up the room a little bit to let them be who they are. And uh, give them space to be themselves and not have to conform to your image and not have to conform to your um, respectability. He talks about, um, in the book, about his son comes from the one day as a dad, during the summer holidays, I want to peroxide my hair. My hair, not my head, my hair. And he says all he could think of, the first thing that came to my mind is what will people say about me? I teach in parenting, and he has my kid now with his orange frock of hair, obviously, peroxide. And uh, he said, though, he thought to himself, he's a good boy, he loves the Lord, he walks in obedience to me. This is not a life-changing thing. So, my boy, you can go ahead and do it. We give our kids room in those... If we're going to have boundary lines, they've got to be broad boundary lines. They've got to have space to roam and find themselves in the midst of that thing. And as good parents, we bring that grace our homes next we must model in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 it says don't let anyone think less of you because you are young be an example to all believers in what you say and the way you live in your love your faith and your purity I don't have a lot to say on this but let me say this they don't, our kids don't care what we say, they care what we do and so we've got a model of this life that God has called us to and so I've got a couple of questions for you, is, uh, is church on Fridays, in your diary, or is a negotiable thing? Because once you have the next slide, because the things that we, uh, we can say church is important to us, but if it's not important to us because we're there and we're committed to it, then it's not going to be important to them. Do your kids see you in prayer? Do they see you reading your Bible? Do they see you journaling before the Lord? Do they hear you say, sorry, I was wrong? When, when you've overstepped them off, when you've sinned, do you repent before your family? What battles do they see you fight? Tell you, there's nothing worse for our kids than to see that. It, 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 no matter what happens, I'll, I'll just keep backing down. There's some things you've got to take your stand on. They've got to see that as well. And do uh, you slander people in the car on the way home from church? I know this has never happened to anybody in this church, but you go home on the way and go, "That rob today." I mean, it's already been thirty-four minutes, and he's got one more point to go. And I'm just like, "What the heck? Does he think we don't have a life?" Your kids are hearing everything that you say in the car. Lastly. We need to engage. And friends, we need to engage our children emotionally, and we need to engage our children physically. I call it conversations and wrestling. And we need to do it when they're toddlers, and we need to do it when they're young boys and young men, and even adult men, and with our daughters as well, when they're toddlers and young girls and young women and uh, and adult women. And um, we've got to engage them throughout their lives. way I've seen it is like this, is that there are certain um, rites of passage that our children grow through as they grow older. When your child moves from, um, I could have put testing boundaries the whole way down there, but I just, to to put something different, I thought I'd I'd put it in there. When your child turns 13, there's something changes. They go from being a kid, I mean, it it'll be different for our kids, whatever the age is, but you know that there comes a point where you almost need to take your boy or your daughter and go, you're no longer a child, I need to talk to you now differently to the way that I spoke to you before. I'm going to treat you differently. You've crossed over. Um, I know that for uh, young daughters, when they hit this age, suddenly the door gets closed. When they, you know what I mean? There isn't that same, if they've, they've gone into puberty, stuff's happening in their bodies. At 16, there's a different shift. At 18, there's another shift. They can, uh, for our kids, we told our kids they couldn't date until they were 16 years old. And so I've got to make sure that I'm preparing them, except for Hannah. She can only date when she's 40. You've got to prepare them so they get to that point where they can date. Um, at, uh, um, at 18, your son or your daughter can legally drink and drive. Well, not at the same time, hopefully. But they can legally drink and they can legally drive. They have got the world up there. If you haven't prepared them by then, if you're not treating them different at that point, then something's gone wrong. And um, we, need to, uh, we need to make sure that throughout our time with our children, we prepare them. One of the things that Linda is so good at is engaging have especially Hannah in conversation. And so I've learned from her. I learned when we're driving her from school to something to say, Hannah, tell me about your day. And if Hannah goes, "That no, was a good day. I go, well, tell me what happened. Then the detail comes. Aren't girls full of detail? Then for the next 15 minutes I know every single thing that could possibly have happened. One part of my brain is screaming, let me out of here, let me out of here. It's too much. It's too much.
1: But I want to engage
0: because there's things in there that are going to be vital. There's, there's pathways that are being carved so that when she needs to come and speak to her dad the things that she can't speak to her mom about, that the, the way is open there. And I saw an amazing thing when I was in South Africa. We were with a family called Richard and Jackie McGavin who needed church in Durban, where I ministered a few weeks back, and we had a, a, a barbecue with them in the evening, a bride we in South Africa, and um, so I was talking to the dad, and we were talking about church models and church life, and um, we were, I mean, there was nothing that couldn't be listened to these little boys who just gotta come home from rugby practice, three they've got seven kids. So they're just like kids everywhere. They're kinda of sitting on the counter, just like this, picking at the food like this while their dad's chopping up a salad or something like that. And they're hearing the conversation between between me and Richard going on. They're not interjecting, they're not making a noise, but they just there catching what's going on I thought, Wow. And then then there's a point in the conversation where okay it's bedtime and then we can we can get into having our adult conversations but and let them eavesdrop into our lives. It's just such an important thing as well. And then lastly, we need to engage physically. I read you this um, quote by the scripture last week from Ezekiel 16. It says, I made you grow like the plant of a field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew and you were naked and bare. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And um,
1: I want to say this to those that have got, those men that have got
0: daughters that have been raised. There comes a, lie, a time, and my daughter's going to be terribly embarrassed when I preach this tonight and she's here. But there comes a time in your daughter's life where she becomes a woman. She has puberty, breasts begin to form, and she's, um, she becomes a woman. And uh, for, for men, or I, probably for all men, it, it can become a slightly awkward time. How do you interact with this? I mean, what happens if, you, if you're hugging her and you brush her boob or something like that? You know, it was like so inappropriate. You're kind of like, you know, dive out the room and your daughter's screaming and she's diving out the room. We weren't even allowed to use the word bra for three months. It was banned completely in our house. It was that kind of thing. And, um, and so what happens at the time when our daughters most need an affirmation of their, their father's physical love, the father in awkwardness withdraws from his girls instead of actually being there, for them when they need it. And James Dobson has got this wonderful quote which I want to read to you. He says, I want to say to all these dads emphatically that your pubescent and adolescent girls are going through a time of great insecurity. They desperately need you now. You are their protector and their source of stability. Your love now is critical to their ability to cope with the rejection, hurts and fears that are coming at them from their peers. Hugs are needed now more than ever. I urge, fathers, to continue providing the physical contact that was appropriate during early uh, childhood. It should not be sexual in nature, of course, but a loving, fatherly response is still vital. The last thing you want to convey now, even inadvertently, is that your love has melted away. So hide the awkwardness, Dad, and hug your kid like you did when she was six. As I'll leap into Hannah's room and I'll start tickling her and, and she's embarrassed and all that sort of stuff and I don't care. Cause I know that I'm doing something that dads have to be doing in their daughters' lives and with their boys as well. Linda put an article the other day onto Facebook, and I read, and I thought, man, this is like the gold standard of wrestling with your boy articles. You know, I, I told you about the time I did that parenting course at one of the schools, and the mother came to me and said, can you come to the house and teach my husband how to wrestle with my son? I'm like, man, that is going to be the most awkward visit i would ever have to do, so I declined. And he talks about, in this article called The Simple Joy of Rough Housing with My Son, he talks about this fight and he says this. He says, I repay the favor that, you know, his son jumps on him. I repay the favor by pinning his shoulders to the floor and tickling his ribs, eventually allowing him to escape for another onslaught. And this is the part, showing him that I understand, that I see him, that I am present, that my attention is nowhere else. That I'm more than disciplined in this structure. That I'll take all he can give without giving up. And that I love him enough to kick his beep, beep. I can, t- a million times where, um, I mean, Hannah likes to kind of get involved in the wrestling as well. videos of her kind of getting involved. And then she kind of backs out of it. But not the boys. I'll be lying there and they'll jump off something so high and land on my back with both their knees on any point, They don't care. It's like I'm free game whatsoever. And my job when they're resting is to make sure they don't miss me and land on the cement or something like that. So I've actually got, if they miss, I've got to throw myself under them so they can crush me. And then when I swing them over my heads like this, like I'm going to break them on my knee like this, I've got to make sure I do it rough enough that they can enjoy it, but not so rough that I actually do break them and bring them down. And fake punch them, and then they dive on me and we wrestle. And I go, every single night, Ethan calls his dad, can you come give me a kiss goodnight? And I come into my room and he hijacks me. You know, like Peter Sellers and that, that butler of his, know, the scene where he comes into the house and the butler's hiding somebody, He just attacks him. That's Ethan with me. And we'll wrestle for about 15 minutes until we're exhausted in the bed. In fact, he gets crossed the it, like, okay, just go now, Dad. But inside he's going, oh, thanks for the wrestle, Dad. It was amazing. And the next night he calls me again. And he's 13 years old. And when I see Matthew 17 and he comes, there's a full-on resting match going on. he's now actually almost able to beat me. He would say, definitely able. I want to say, almost able. Friends, this is it. Our kids need physical affection. You kiss your kids. I, um, I, we're all different, and I don't expect you to be the same as me, but, but I, I want my kids, I want to kiss them. I actually remember dropping Matthew at school the one day. He was about five or six or something like that, and I said, where's my kiss? And he ran off like this without the kiss. I just took my keys of my car, left it in the road. I ran up. He ran that way at his classroom. I ran the other way around. And I was standing in his classroom when he got there like this. And he was like, like this. And I said, boy, I can kiss you in front of your friends or I can kiss you in the car. It's your decision. So we went out the corner. He gave me a kiss. And he never, ever didn't give me a kiss again after that. (laughs) Isaiah 43 again. Johnny, you can come, up, buddy. says this. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And I want to just take a moment. It's Father's Day on Sunday. To have all those that are fathers to just stand up this morning while the rest of us, or the rest of you stay seated. You're a dad. Why don't you just stand for a moment? Just appreciate these fathers just for a moment. Why don't we just do that? Well done, Dad. Why don't you stretch your hands out to them. I want to pray for the fathers in this room. And if you are, not yet have children, but one day you will, I want to pray just over you as well as a, as a father to me. But what a we able to carry, and yet, Lord God, you've called us to it, and so we must be able to do it, Lord God, and do it well. And I want to pray for every father that's standing here, Lord God, some whose children are grown up, and some whose children are still really young, Lord God. I want to pray that you would give them the wisdom to Father in the season that they're in. Father, maybe there have been mistakes that have been made, but I thank you, Lord, that you are redemptive in every season, every season. And I want to pray that perhaps where there's been brokenness or misunderstanding or even estrangement of God. And Father, you would work your healing power in there as these dads reach out afresh to their sons. Repent for the things they've done wrong. Forgive for the things their sons have done wrong. God. I want to pray for all of us that have children in our homes. And again, Lord, maybe we have made mistakes. We ask you today to please forgive us for those mistakes. give us the wisdom in this time. Lead in accordance with your word, Lord oh God. Help us to establish them in truth. Help us to establish our identity, Lord oh God. Help us to model what it means to be a godly man and a godly father and a godly husband to them. And help us to engage emotionally and physically with our children, Lord. Let the rest of you stand. Please. And Lord, I pray over every single one of us. We thank you that we thank you today for our fathers. Whoever they are around the world, scattered as they probably are around the world, some have been passed on. We thank you, Father, for what they've sown into our lives. We appreciate and we value them today. And even as they, um, they are without us, probably this Sunday as we celebrate Father's Day, I pray, Lord God, that they would know that they are loved, that they are respected, that they are honored by us, And Lord, even if they have made that relationship if it's possible, God. And if not, God, I want to pray that you would at least heal the hearts of those that have been hurt by those fathers, that they can have no distance and no space between them and you. And we honor you, the heavenly Father. Thank you that you are the perfect Father, that you loved us so much, that you sent your only Son, that whoever believes in you should not perish, but have Rebellion and negligence, Lord God, you reached out to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And though we were far from you, Lord God, through his death upon the cross in our place, our sins were paid for that forgiveness might be ours. And friends, if you are here today and you don't know the heavenly Father, the reason Jesus came was that you would be reconciled. The Bible says that whoever believes in him and receives him, he gives the right to become children sons and daughters of God. And there's no religious ritual that you can go through to become his father. There's no hoops that you can dive through or hurdles you can jump over. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the father except through me. This morning, I want to give you an opportunity, if that is you, to receive Christ. We pray for grown-up um, teenagers, toddlers, and infants that are in our care. We pray for their best. We pray that you would, you would show them the plan that you have for their lives. And you would walk them and you would guide them by your holy spirit for the fullness of that plan. And where some of them have been caught up and lost at this time, we call them back. We stand as a community, we call those sons and daughters back. They come back now name of Jesus, come back. Come back.